0: Welcome to Explained, a podcast where we use yesterday to understand today. As always, I'm your host Izzy Moss, and I'm a social and cultural historian. Every week, we use history to unpack one of today's big social and cultural issues, and this week's episode is a particularly relevant one right now, especially as we start to get into the summer months here in Australia. Because on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the growing bushfire crisis that we've been seeing here in Australia, especially over the last few years, and. Looking at how the history of Indigenous land management practices can actually help us understand how we got into this mess. Because we're seeing fires on a scale that we just haven't seen before. Summer after summer, we seem to be seeing these same sort of catastrophic once in a lifetime sort of fires again and again. These fires are bigger than we've ever seen before, the fire seasons are longer than we're used to, and more and more people are losing their lives and homes. And so rightly so, we all seem to be asking, why is this happening? Why are we seeing such an increase in these sorts of catastrophic bushfires right across the country? And so what I want to show you today is that the answer to these questions lies within the largely forgotten history of Indigenous land management practices. For over 65,000 years, the First Nations peoples of this country were using sophisticated and complex fire regimes to keep these sorts of catastrophic bushfires at bay. But since European colonization, we have been fundamentally mismanaging the land. And so this bushfire catastrophe that we're seeing now is the accumulative effect of these 250 years of ineffective land management. But before we get properly into all of this, Let's start by just having a little look at what's actually been happening here in Australia over the last few summers and get a sense of where this environmental crisis is actually at. Okay, so for anyone living in Australia, you would probably be well aware that over the last few decades, bushfires just seem to be getting worse and worse. While bushfires themselves are not necessarily anything new to Australia, It's this scale and frequency and intensity that we're seeing that is increasing at just an alarming rate. Just in living memory, there was the Black Tuesday fires in Tasmania back in 1967 when 62 people were killed. There was the Ash Wednesday bushfires in 1983 when 75 people died and 1,500 homes were lost. Then there was the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 in Victoria when 173 people lost their lives. And then there was the devastating black summer bushfires of 2019-2020. The cataclysmic scale of these fires made the news all across the world. We had just never seen anything like this before. It was the worst bushfires on record in New South Wales in terms of scale and impact, with over 11,000 individual fires burning across the country, and some 80% of Australians directly impacted. In the end, 33 people died as a direct result of the fires, a further 450 more died from the effects of smoke inhalation, nearly 10,000 buildings were destroyed, more than 10 million hectares of land were burnt, and it's thought that at least 3 million animals died, with many species pushed close to the threat of extinction for the first time. And now, experts warn that this coming summer is shaping up to possibly be the worst bushfire season we've ever seen, even surpassing these cataclysmic events of the Black Summer fires. The Australasian Fire Authorities Council has warned that large parts of Australia are likely to experience an increased risk of bushfires this season, with the Bureau of Meteorology expecting temperatures to be significantly above average, and rainfall expected to be unusually low. On top of all this, the huge amounts of rain we saw over the last three years with La Nina has allowed for an unusually rapid growth in grass loads and forest undergrowth across much of the country. And to make matters even worse, this prolonged and heavy rain has meant hazard reduction burns have been significantly limited. The New South Wales Rural Fire Service has only been able to conduct about 25% of their hazard reduction targets over the last 12 months. So with temperatures set to soar way above average and with an unusually high fuel load buildup, the situation going into this summer can really only be described as very grim. We've already seen the beginnings of this start to play out. The fire season has started significantly earlier than is typical, and with far greater intensity than in previous years. Throughout September, October, and November, we have already seen nearly 1,000 fires across the country, and this is scarily early compared to, say, the Black Summer fires, which didn't really get going until well into December. And at the time of recording, we've already seen 8 lives lost, 120 homes destroyed, and 610,000 square kilometers of land has already been burned. So, quite understandably, fire services across the country are deeply concerned about what this summer may look like. In Queensland, the chief of the Rural Fire Brigade Association has warned that the state looks to be facing its worst fire season in 70 years, with the association's general manager saying... The last time we've seen the stars line up for a season like this was in the 1950s. In WA, the Chief Fire Commission has warned that the state's bushfire season seems to be running about five to eight weeks ahead of schedule this year, with a number of large fires ravaging the north of Perth at the time of recording. And in New South Wales, the Commissioner of the Rural Fire Services has warned that they're preparing for the worst season since the Black Summer fires. There is real and warranted fear that we may be entering another summer of catastrophic loss. Experts predict that we could see similar losses of life, homes, and animals that we did back in 2019 and 2020. But another year of huge uncontrollable bushfires would only further add to the long-term damage that these sorts of events are causing to the environment. Satellite data estimates that the carbon emissions from the Black Summer bushfires to be around 715 million tonnes. That surpasses Australia's normal annual bushfire and fossil fuel emissions by around 80%. And research recently published by the University of Exeter found that these huge amounts of greenhouse gases appear to have caused a significant damage to the Earth's ozone layer, with researchers describing a very large, deep and long-lived ozone hole after these fires. But why is this all happening? Why do these bushfires seem to just be getting worse and worse every summer? This is the question you hear everyone asking at the moment, on the news, in the media, by politicians, and just by everyday people who are really the ones suffering from the consequences of this growing problem. Because we do have a number of fire prevention methods that we're currently using to try to minimise the risk of catastrophic fires. The main method that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with is hazard reduction burns. These are controlled fires that are performed before the fire season to try to sort of burn off any excess fuel like leaf litter and shrubs. And ultimately the aim is that when the fires do inevitably break out that they advance slower and they're less intense than they would have been otherwise. And these strategies certainly do work to some extent. A recent study was conducted to test how effective hazard reduction burns actually are in reducing the severity of bushfires. And the findings of this study conclusively found that these sorts of fuel reductions burn do reduce fire severity. But then the question still remains, why are all these fires still getting progressively more catastrophic, even when we're working so hard to try to prevent them? Now, experts agree that climate change is definitely playing a role here. Since the 1950s, we've seen an increase in the occurrence of extreme weather across large parts of the country. The summers are hotter, longer, and drier than ever before. According to the Forest Fire Danger Index, these more extreme weather conditions have undoubtedly played a role in these longer and more intense fire seasons. This link is well documented and widely discussed. Scientists, politicians, and just everyday people all seem to be aware of this relationship between climate change and the worsening bushfire crisis here in Australia. But this is not the whole story. There's a second factor here that we just don't seem to talk about as much, a factor that really lies right at the heart of this bushfire crisis, and that is a fundamental and general mismanagement of the Australian landscape. Since European colonization here in Australia, the land has just not been managed as it should be and had been for over 65,000 years. Indigenous peoples had developed complex ways of managing the land and reducing the risk of bushfire. So then what happens when you stop managing the landscape in the way that it had been for 2,600 generations? Well, we're living in that reality right now. So... Let's have a deeper look then at the history of indigenous land management here in Australia and see how it can help us better understand this growing bushfire crisis. So, to tell this story, we have to start by going all the way back to when humans first arrived here in Australia, over 65,000 years ago. You also have to know that fire has always been a fundamental earth system process. It has occurred all across the world and long before people even walked this earth but humans have always had this innate desire to control their environment, to make it safer, to make it predictable and to make it more resource rich. So long, long ago, humans took this naturally occurring process of fire and began to manipulate it for their own advantage. The first evidence that we actually have of humans controlling fire dates all the way back to 1.5 million years ago. So then, when the first people did arrive here in Australia, 65,000 years ago, they brought with them these really sophisticated fire skills. It was integral to their lives. They used fire for cooking, for food, for warmth and for light, but they also used it to control the environment. Fire was used systematically, purposefully and continuously to produce a landscape that was safe, predictable and productive. What this meant practically, though, is that throughout the entirety of the year, small-scale, cool burns were frequently performed in a sort of alternative mosaic pattern. These sorts of fires did not burn everything in their path, though, like how an uncontrolled bushfire would, or even how a hazard reduction burn would. But they moved slow and low and cool under the canopy of the trees, just lightly burning off the grass in a very controlled way. And these practices were very intimately connected and responsive to the changing landscape. Indigenous people used natural markers like the blooming of a certain flower as indicators of when and when specific burns should be conducted. Now, the specifics of these fire regimes did vary a bit between different groups, according to differences in culture and local terrain and climate. But regardless of their differences, all these fire regimes serve the same purpose. They created the best conditions for land, plants, animals, and people all to thrive. For the land, it reduced excess fuel and thereby minimized the risk of catastrophic, uncontrollable wildfires. For plants, it supported biodiversity as many seeds cannot germinate without the presence of fire. For animals, it encouraged the growth of feed and shaped habitats in a way that allowed many species to thrive in the various stages of their life cycles. And for people, this kind of land management created a safe, predictable and productive environment, where houses and sacred sites were protected from uncontrollable fires, where animal movement was made predictable for effective hunting, and where agricultural output was optimised. Now, these fire regimes were so effective as they had literally tens of thousands of years of experience behind them. Over thousands of generations, these knowledges were slowly refined and then passed down through stories and songs and dances. But these land management practices had an even greater significance, though, and an impact that is particularly important for our story today. After being practiced for tens of thousands of years, these fire regimes actually radically and permanently changed the physical landscape here in Australia. So, prior to the arrival of humans, Australia was actually full of dense and woody forests. But when people then began to implement these fire regimes, and over such a prolonged period of time, the landscape actually gradually and permanently transformed. It became far more bare and very grassy, with only a few large trees which were often spaced about 20 or 40 feet apart from each other. The idea is that by continually burning the land, it suppressed the establishment of this sort of woody vegetation. Big trees obviously take a long time to mature, some take literally hundreds of years. So if this land is getting burnt every single year, you will only ever get shrubs. There is literally no opportunity for anything larger to grow and become mature. And then after 65,000 years of doing this, the ecosystem actually permanently adapted to these changes. Plants and animals were now dependent on this type of grassy landscape and these indigenous fire regimes to actually survive. The orange-bellied parrot is a really great example of this. Early in the breeding season, they need areas that were burnt about 7-15 to years earlier, and where there's this really medium, sort of dense shrubs. But then in the mid-breeding season, they seek out areas that were burnt 3-5 to years ago, where there's only a very light level of grass. And in order for all this to be achieved, though, it obviously requires continuous land management. And unsurprising, then, these parrots are most numerous in areas where indigenous fire regimes are regularly practiced, and then extinct in places where they're not. Now, as a very dry country, there are very few fossilized plants that can be used as evidence for this shift from woody to grassy vegetation. But what we do have, though, are animal eggshells. They're one of the best pieces of evidence that we have for this shift in several studies scientists have analyzed the kind of carbon that's found in these shells and they found that there seems to be a change in the type of carbon over time this signaled to the scientists a shift in the actual diet of the animals a diet that used to be woody and is now full of grassy shrubs which is just fantastic that they can find this in the shells but for our story today, it's this permanent shift from woody forest to grassy landscapes that is particularly important. This new landscape was simply not conducive to the sorts of big and uncontrollable bushfires that we see today. Without any big woody trees, there was just such a low fuel load, which made it basically impossible for bushfires to start. And the small trees that did exist were spaced so far apart that even if a fire did manage to start, it was literally impossible for it to really take hold and grow. And science supports this idea too. There is actually no biological evidence that suggests any sort of large-scale or uncontrollable bushfire to have ever occurred under this kind of indigenous land management. So basically, indigenous peoples here in Australia had developed such sophisticated and effective land management practices that they had managed to not just minimize the effects of bushfires, but actually completely prevent them from occurring at all. So then when the Europeans arrived here in Australia in 1788, it is these land management practices and these grassy landscapes that they actually encountered. There are endless first-hand accounts from early European colonists who attest to the fact that these bioregimes regimes were being actively and widely practiced by Indigenous peoples at this time. Some accounts talk directly about these practices, like The English marine painter Oswald Brearley, who said in 1849, Observing that the grass had been burnt on portions of the flats, the blacks said that the rain was coming and would make the young grass spring up, and that would bring down the kangaroos, and then the blacks would spear them from the shrub. Other accounts more so allude to these practices by describing landscapes that seem to bear the imprint of these fire regimes. Like the account of Henry Hellyer, who said after his survey of Tasmania in 1828, The whole country here is grassy. The timber found on these hills is, in general, of fine growth, very tall and straight. The trees are in many places a hundred yards apart. There are many plains of several square miles without a single tree. They also often remarked how the Australian bush actually reminded them of the manicured parks of England with its sweeping grass fields and scattered trees. An explorer named William Cox described the hinterland of New South Wales in 1815. Fine, dry, healthy hills, gravely soil, and good grass, and so thinly timbered that it resembled parks in England rather than a forest. Even Sidney Parkinson, who was the botanist on board the First Fleet, noticed this similarity. The country looked very pleasant and fertile, and the trees, quite free from underwood, appeared like plantations in a gentleman's park. There is also really clear visual evidence of this kind of indigenous land management. The work of early colonial artist John Glover is a really good example of this. Glover loved a landscape and paints so many wonderful scenes of what he encountered here in Australia in the early years after colonization. But for our story today, these paintings are really important because time and time again, Glover paints these scenes with wide space trees and really minimal shrubbery. What he's looking at, and painting, and we can see now, is clearly a landscape that's been managed according to traditional indigenous land management practices. But this won't last for long. While Aboriginal people had been using fire as a tool for tens of thousands of years to effectively manage the land, the Europeans saw fire as a threat. Something to be scared of, and something to be avoided at all costs. This intense connection between fire and the Australian landscape was just not something they were even aware of. And so, as the colonists moved further and further into the country, and as Indigenous people were forcibly removed from their traditional lands and then barred from participating in these traditional land management practices, Australia's fragile environment began to collapse. Within just a few decades, The once grassy landscape that we just described had become overwhelmed by shrubs. One colonist named J.C. Rogers recalled, It had been the accepted thing to burn the bush, to provide a new growth of shorter sweet feed for cattle. The practice was to burn the country as often as possible, in the hottest and driest weather in January and February, and thus make a clean burn. But the long-followed practice was abandoned and resulted in a great increase in shrub in all the timbered areas. The fires forced the trees to sea and coppice, and in time an almost impenetrable forest arose. Thomas Mitchell, a prominent surveyor and explorer in southeastern Australia, observed a similar process. He described how by 1848 there were already noticeable changes to the type of vegetation he could observe in the landscape. Where a man might gallop whole miles without impediment and see whole miles before him, the emission of the annual periodic burn by natives of the grass and young saplings has already produced in the open forest lands nearest to Sydney, thick forests of young trees. Kangaroos are no longer seen there, the grass is choked by underwood. Neither are their natives to burn the grass, nor is the fire longer desirable among the fences of the settlers. And the science backs up these observations too. Recent research conducted in the dense Tasmanian bush found that All of the large rainforest trees that dominate this area actually post-date the removal of Aboriginal people from these lands in the late 1700s. So what this definitively shows us is that it was only after Aboriginal people were forcibly removed and subsequently prevented from operating their traditional fire regimes that we see these big, dense and woody forests begin to emerge. And so, quite unsurprisingly, as we start to see the landscape shift away from this managed and grassy state towards an unmanaged woody forest, we start to see uncontrollable bushfires for the first time. The first major bushfires in the colony of New South Wales were reported in 1797. That's only nine years after the first fleet arrived in Sydney. And the response of the government was to limit the use of fire entirely on agricultural lands. They thought that if they stopped using fire, then they wouldn't get these catastrophic bushfires. The Home Secretary, the Duke of Portland, issued the following statement in 1798. To remedy so alarming an evil, it will be proper to oblige all persons holding farms, adjoining waste and uncultivated land, to keep ploughed up so much, as shall be adjudged sufficient to stop the progress of the fire. While we can sort of see the logic in this, it is actually the exact opposite of what the land needed at this point. It needed more fire put into it, not fire to be removed entirely from it. So when it became clear that the European colonists were using fire far too infrequently, many Aboriginal people actually tried to give them advice. One example of this comes from the freed convict called Robert Alexander. He describes the very specific instructions he was given by Ginor Jack, a Bidwell Mayap man, who described to him how he should burn the bush in the Genoa Valley. Jinor advised Robert that he should burn in February and March and start after the longest day when the sap begins to go down the trees. He instructed Robert then that he should repeat this process every five years. But the European colonists wouldn't listen. They continued to avoid using fire and only burning excess plant material when the fuel buildup became too extreme. And so, without indigenous land management, the Australian landscape continued to fall further and further into disrepair. And so, by the mid-20th century, we start to see a landscape that looks completely different than what these early colonists described back in 1788. The large grassy plains that once covered the country have been completely replaced with dense vegetation, like down in southwestern Victoria on the Bellarine Peninsula, where we see a tenfold increase in woody plant coverage, and like we see around the base of Uluru, where there's now a shrub invasion of spinifex grass. This new and dense bushland that had been growing and maturing now for nearly 200 years was the perfect environment for catastrophic bushfires. There was plenty of fuel all closely packed together, and in this kind of environment, A particularly hot day or a lightning strike is all that's needed for an uncontrollable fire to start. And on top of all this, from the 1950s, we see climate change get added into the mix. As we talked about a bit before, climate change on its own is not responsible for the bushfire crisis that we're facing, but it's this extreme weather, coupled with this increasingly dense bushland, that was the absolutely perfect condition for these kind of catastrophic bushfires to start. And so it's not surprising at all, then, that it's from this time in the 1950s that we start to see an increase in frequency and scale of bushfires. And as the decades went on, and the longer we went without traditional indigenous land management, the trees got bigger and the fuel load got more dense, and so these fires only got worse and worse, no matter how much hazard reduction burning we do. It does not change the fact that the landscape is being fundamentally mismanaged right at its core. It's like putting a band-aid on a broken leg or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The problem is just so far gone. Hazard reduction burning doesn't even touch the sides of the problem because we just shouldn't have these big dense forests. It's unnatural for the Australian landscape to look like this. And what it proves is that the Australian continent is just incompatible with European management styles. And the bushfire crisis that we're seeing in recent years just points to this catastrophic management failure that we've been facing since the British invaded 250 years ago. But today, in modern Australian society, we have been so reluctant to recognise the impact Indigenous peoples have had on this environment how they created these sophisticated and complex land management regimes that fundamentally changed the physical landscape and kept catastrophic bushfires completely at bay. We have this mindset that the Australian landscape is completely natural, but all the evidence suggests the opposite. It's clear that this land is the direct result of Indigenous management and that it's so dependent on these traditional fire regimes. And the worst bit in all of this is that Indigenous people saw this coming. They knew what would happen if the landscape was not managed correctly. It's heartbreaking when you can actually see an alternative and you've walked with fire that is so safe. To see what our firefighters have had to deal with is just, you know, it's terrible. When I saw the catastrophic fires happening this summer, it was no surprise to me. It was a time bomb waiting to go off our masses, of amount of fuel loads and the wrong vegetation, that's lined up with drought as well. I feel sorry for the firefighters. They're just volunteers. And then they're thrown out into a, like a war zone, into an inferno. But we are slowly starting to see Australia begin to recognise the importance of Indigenous land management in trying to deal with this growing bushfire crisis. In early 2020, so right off the back of the black summer fires, we saw 200 experts come together. They put forward six lessons that must be learnt from these catastrophic events if we are to see fundamental change moving forward. And number six on their list was that First Nation fire regimes have been completely sidelined in contemporary Australian society. They advised that we must support Indigenous peoples to re-establish these fire practices if we are to actually see any real change in facing these catastrophic bushfires going forward. Later that same year, the Royal Commission International Natural Disaster Arrangements published their findings. When it came to the growing bushfire crisis, the Commission drew particular attention to the importance of Indigenous land management regimes. They noted that these practices have been disrupted for a number of generations, but they are vital and important if we are to maintain and reinstate the health of this land. We've also seen the beginnings of a move towards actually re-implementing Indigenous land management programs. The West Arnhem Land Fire Abatement Program is perhaps the best and most successful attempt at this, though. this innovative program began back in 1996 to address the chronic fire management problem that was facing the Northern Territory's West Arnhem land. The key objective of the program has been to re-establish traditional fire management practices in the region. And the results of the program have been amazing. The number of catastrophic late season fires has been significantly reduced since the program was implemented. But we do still have a long way to go. As a country, we need a radical shift in our mindset. We have to accept that there is a way of using fire frequently that is healthy and safe. We need more people to be trained in these traditional land management practices so that we're able to perform it on a larger scale. And we need to accept the value in indigenous knowledges and practices. We need to accept them as the sophisticated and complex systems that they are and recognise the immense value they hold in helping mitigate some of the biggest issues facing contemporary Australian society. So, as depressing as the current bushfire crisis feels right now, there is a way out of this. If we implement these same fire regimes that have been practised on this land for over 65,000 years, we can bring this landscape back to the way it should be. We can bring back the grassy plains where catastrophic bushfires simply cannot take hold. Now, it certainly won't be easy. We do still have a climate crisis going on in parallel to this, and things like infrastructure, houses, fences, and power lines all do complicate it, but they certainly don't prevent it. There is hope at the end of this tunnel. We just have to listen to the knowledges and the people that have been here for 65,000 years. And on that note then, I think that just about wraps up today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and that you learned something. I know I really enjoyed bringing you this episode. And if you did like it, please hit follow and leave us a review. And come and have a chat to us over at our Instagram at ExplainedPod. I can't wait to chat to you again next week. I will see you next Thursday. So until then, goodbye. This episode of Explained was recorded on the lands of the Dark people of the Eora Nation. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of these lands, both past and present, and extend that respect to all First Nations peoples listening today. At the center of what we do here at Explained is the acknowledgement that history has been practiced across these unceded lands since time immemorial, shared through storytelling, art, dance, song, and ritual. We believe that no history can be truly representative without taking into consideration the contributions and sophistication of First Nations histories and their diverse methods of historical practice. We remember this as we tell these stories, continually striving to challenge and expand what we consider to be history here in Australia.